Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I am delighted to welcome back to the podcast, AJ Sherrill. Uh, some of you may remember him uh, being with me not that long ago as we talked about his book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. And I have grown to really love that book. I There's so much there, and it is a great introduction to the Enneagram. Um, many of you heard Suzanne Stabile not that long ago here on the podcast with her new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness. If the Enneagram is new to you, start with AJ's book, um, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. I've loved it and I've been through it twice now, and um, I do recommend that to you. But <laughs> we're going to talk about something else today with AJ Cheryl. Um, and, and I'm just, first of all, I'm just going to welcome him back. So AJ, welcome back to Faith Conversations. So good. I love chatting with you. I love your depth, <laughs> your zest, and uh, it's just always uh, a joy to be in a conversation with you. Well, glad you're here. Um, how do you introduce yourself these days? Because you're in a new post. I think when I talked to you last time, you had were maybe just moving to South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been on an Anglican journey for a long time. Um, we're a low church Anglican church. So, um, father priest, um, I respect those terms. I don't connect with them in terms of my own sense of, um, self-understanding and identity. I would say, um, I, I, I love just being AJ and a lot of people in my church just call me a, you know, a pastor. So that's a lot of fun. And, um, I am also a dad and a husband, and those are um, really important categories for me. And most important of all, I've, I've, being a disciple of Jesus is how I love to talk about um, how I understand myself. All right. Well, that tells us what exactly what we need to know. Uh, you've written a new book called Being With God. And I, what grabbed me was the subtitle, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. Um, I have long been a proponent of spiritual formation and feel like that the formational journey is so important to our um, Christian discipleship, which I think is lacking in a, in a lot of churches, or we've lost our way or don't know what we're doing, or maybe we never found our way with discipleship. I don't know. But um, a contemplative prayer obviously is a practice that I think many of us want to engage in. And, and we say, oh yeah, I want to do that. Uh, I'm going to do something else first. It sounds way too hard. Yeah. And here you are writing on this and really breaking it down well. But I think the first piece of information we need to know from you is what led to you writing this book. I, I think the author's journey is always interesting. You don't yeah. write about something you're not interested in or that hasn't touched you in a deep way. So tell us your story on this. Yeah. And this book was my idea, not my publishers. So you're right. And that it comes from a, a pretty um, authentic and, and um, in many ways, painful place in my life, uh, painful in all the right ways. 
I failed in all intents and purposes from a human standpoint to plant a church in Los Angeles, California in my 20s. I'd raised a bunch of money. Um, I had led a big thing and just decided to like resign and move to California and plant a church in my 20s and was just like up for a, a journey, a, up for a challenge. And it it failed, meaning that we didn't get enough people and enough money is what that usually means in America. And I, as an Enneagram 3, like was really self-critical, a lot of shame, a lot of sense of hiding and embarrassment, especially on social media, as a lot of my church planting friends were like thriving by all intents and purposes and all the metrics we use. And I realized at that time, like I didn't know how to pray. I knew how to pray at God. I knew how to pray for God. I didn't know how to be with God. So I didn't have like a relationship really beyond me talking with the creator of the universe. And so I realized so much of my spirituality, so much of my formation, so much of my life was performative and achievement oriented. So I began to just sense that there was a deeper thing when I read the gospels and Jesus saying to go into your room and pray from that place, which I don't think is just talking about like your house. I think there's something he's speaking multidimensionally into like the depths of the soul, learn to pray because that's where I am. I hide myself in you and you don't know me. So um, that was the beginning of my journey. And then fast forward a few years, I ended up pastoring a really wonderful church in New York City. And I used to take people to the monastery to, to pray in this way and to learn to be with God as we fellowshiped with one another over the course of a weekend. And I, I realized like we've got to develop an inner monastery because we can't leave the city every time we want to go pray. So what does it mean um, to develop a kind of inner monastery within the noisiest of cities in all the world in order to commune with the divine? And so a lot of it was birthed out of pain, but also purpose of saying, I want a deeper walk with God. Um, and I believe, I believe the scriptures when it says that no longer does the presence of God dwell most significantly in the temple or um, in the tabernacle, but in in the surrendered person of Christ is where the Holy of Holies now resides. Like, what does it mean to take that seriously? And that is the beginning of contemplative prayer. Ooh. Okay. You've started us. All right. And I'm going to ask a totally frivolous question. I want to know the monastery because I read about the good food there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Holy cross monastery. I highly recommend, although it's hard to get, you get your own private room on the Hudson river. Um, and it's chefed by the Culinary Institute of America, and they have Eucharistic services every day, Ugh. libraries you can go sit in, a fire going all the time. It is like paradise. And I said to my wife, listen, if anything ever happened to you and Eloise, yeah, I would be super you're there, right here. I'm at the monastery, you know, and she knows that. She's like, you are an inner monk, and it's well, hilarious. Uh, so this is me with St. John's uh, Abbey and Guest House in Collegeville, Minnesota. My husband uh, went to Catholic grade school, high school, university and graduate school, retired from being a Protestant minister about five years ago, but St. John's, the, the, just the property. I always say the Catholics bought up all the great properties. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so wise. I love that. Very wise. Yes, they were. So, all right, back, back to the business at hand. So I'm a spiritual director. And one of the things that so many people, I, I wish I had kept count how many people said, have said to me, I don't know how to pray or prayer is not what I thought, or God does not answer my prayers because mm -hmm. prayers in often in the, especially the evangelical church, let's say has been taught, um, 
or not taught, but when taught to be one way only and very much the grocery list of intercessory, bring your requests. And that's, you yeah. talk to God, but there's nothing else there. And so, so talk about our struggle there to even, I mean, you, you outline contemplative prayer in such a way that is so inviting, but it's not a way that we hear about it talked about largely in the church mm -hmm. setting. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would say um, to whoever's listening is that that's how we all feel like we, we're all sort of bad at it. So um, I love to start with grace and um, not performance of we're all just sort of struggling to fail forward in this practice. Nevertheless, I think although prayer is something you do, I think it's something you trust. And that's a very different thing of needing to yield results that I prayed this prayer, therefore, God, you need to. That, that is a very different construct of the I-thou construct where God is a free agent to be God. Um, we often want God to be the subject of our desire. And so God's role in our life is to perform. That our role in our life is to perform. That God's role in our life is to perform. And that creates a very transactional type of spirituality yes. where you do this, I do that. Um, and, um, where did we get that? Where did that come from? I mean, I feel like I, that's pervasive. I don't know where it began, but I can tell you this, the industrial revolution and now in the technocratic age that we're in, um, has only accelerated that. I mean, you see Jesus coming along using all sorts of agricultural metaphors right. in his teaching. And I think, I mean, some of that was, you know, in the Galilee, they were surrounded by that. But I, I think more than that, it translates well to our culture because we are still thinking in, through an industrial lens in terms of performance assembly line, um, transactional Amazon um, purchase. I mean, that's it's baked into our cultural moment and everything we do, whether we know it or not, that is the air we breathe. And so it's, it's with good reason, although it's sad, but it's with good reason that that would be how I would view my, my life with God is performative. And um, I, I just, I say prayer is something you trust because I think it's something a prayer life is a journey that unfolds over the course of a life, just like any relationship would. Yes. Um, and, and so when we do pray, I think we have to give space and time for things to develop and happen. And we're not very good at that, especially going back to the Amazon sort of motif. Like we, we get upset if our prime delivery doesn't isn't on time within 24 hours, you know, especially in a supply chain moment where we're frustrated in a pandemic that things aren't arriving as quickly as we want. So it's, it's impossible for that not to impact our worldview of how we think about the divine. So it's important, I think, that we immerse ourselves in the gospels in order to be inscripted by that story, yeah. rather than the stories that we're surrounded, surrounded in that impact how we, how we see God. One of the other things I want to mention right here at the front end of the podcast as well is you, you break the book down into three sections, which I think is really interesting and helpful. Um, part one, absurdity, part two, necessity, part three, neurology. Uh, and I have to, and I have to tell you, I listened to the audiobook. I love audiobooks, So, um, I listened and read at read, read along with some of it, but, um, so took it in two different ways, <laughs> um, hoping it would maybe stick more. <laughs> but um, I, I would love for you to say a word about absurdity, because I think that's an interesting name to part one. But there's some really important things that are that you address in the front of the book. And one specifically that I'm kind of 
wrestling with right now is tech. Yeah. Yeah. Tech is huge. And, and, and let me preface it with this in July of 2019, the lights went out in times square. So JLo was doing a show, all the lights went off. She was not happy about that, nor there were her fans. And so you have 70,000 people in Times Square stumbling into the dark with their cell phones to illuminate the path. And like the headline was like, you know, something like, can you believe it? Like the lights went out in Times Square. And um, it's true. Like, what do you expect in Times Square at 4 a.m.? You expect lights. What do you expect at 4 p.m.? Lights. What do you expect at noon? Lights. What do you expect at midnight? Lights. And, and I think the absurdity of that is that um, it's, it's a real, um, I think, symbol of our lives is that um, what's more absurd, like that the lights went out um, or that we expect them to always be on. Yeah. And I, I think that's sort of where we are in our lives, where we're just pushing ourselves, we're pushing sleep, we're pushing boundaries, we're pushing credit cards, we're, pu- we're maxed out in so many areas. Um, and so how do we resist that? And when we do resist that and live into another um, worldview in the kingdom of God, no longer um, are, are we living absurd to God, but we're now living absurd to the world. So like we, we, we enculturate ourselves in such a way that most of our lives to God is absurd <laughs> and we live upside down. But when we begin to live right side up in congruence with how God created the universe, what we find is that we now feel absurd to the culture around us where time is money, where everything is about, um, you know, immediate results, all that stuff. So, and I think technology has only further galvanized that um, to where, I mean, we, we have muscle memory that just reaches for phones. I, I was kidding with the church I pastor here in Charleston, South Carolina, a few days ago that, um, that, that we even allow ourselves to, to scroll in the bathroom. I mean, that's, that's how addicted we've become to filling all of the space in our lives with information and, prov- you know, provocation and intrigue and, these sort of dopamine hits is we take it to the bathroom. Not only is that kind of gross, but it's also absurd that every moment we are trying to fill sitting in a stoplight, I need to reach for my phone. Every moment is filled. And so I love how Henri now and dis- defines discipline. You know, we, we have, we think that's like a dirty term yeah. discipline. He says is the act of creating space so that not everything in life gets filled up. And I am so attracted to the white space of that comment of like, oh my word, what does it mean to create margin? And what if I have more margin than I think, but it's that I keep taking these short little intervals that I have for space and I fill them up with content. And that is not a significant life in God. I think that's a life that's filled with information rather than formation. So I'll tell you immediately where that took me, um, podcast listeners know that I fell and cracked my skull open and had a traumatic brain injury. Okay. That's the bad part. The good part (laughs) is I had to, um, create margin. I could not go back to the life that I had been leading in the same way I had been leading it. Now I act I was not full time, you know, full on go, go, go. Like I had been in the days of a radio career that I had, but it was still a full life. And I experienced this great sense of relief that I had to cancel things. It it felt so good. And it was just so interesting to even hear you say that, that 
uh, um, even someone who's maybe living in a part-time kind of capacity work-wise felt that beautiful sense of margin that had to come because of injury. You know, you can fill in the blank, any injury and uh, that, that causes us to make a shift or a change in our lives. And, and it has me, had me, still has me thinking, oh, I don't want to go back, you know, the number of clients that I thought that I uh, would be my top, you know, I've just lowered that a little bit. I, I don't want that. I don't want to go, oh, let's fill up to capacity or whatever. Well, what, you know, we just have poor thinking in, in that direction, don't we? I mean, I'm hearing you say this and it's really resonating with me personally. Well, I mean, I think that's the invitation of, of contemplation is um, there is a self-emptying in it, but it's also learning to reattach to ultimate meaning. Like I'll give you an example. One of the things I'm pretty passionate about is differentiating um, like mindfulness from contemplative prayer. And I'm, I'm not opposed to mindfulness, but it only really gets us halfway down the field within the Christian story because mindfulness is all about detachment from ego, detachment from calendars, detachment from that which creates like inverted desire. Um, but the beauty of contemplation is that it gets us the rest of the way down the field, so to speak, because it's about reattachment. That's why Jesus says, abide in me. Mm. Um, he, he's saying like, figure out that I'm reality, that I'm ultimate meaning and abide with me, re reattach to me. And you will discover um, that there is a fruitfulness in your life that, that far outweighs the sort of productivity that the world around you is, is longing for you to give yourself to. And so, um, you know, it, it's those sorts of things that I think contemplative prayer are really helpful for, because it does help us to release our control and illusions a bit more. Um, cause for me, like I wake up and I'm ready to get into email. I'm ready to create, I'm ready to write, ready to, to read. And it's like, all I can do to be like, okay, wait, just like, you don't need to achieve anything. You need to receive everything that mm -hmm. it's really is by grace. So sit in the presence of the Lord and trust that, that God is here and that this is the most important thing you can be doing with your life right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, and I could really say thanks so much for being with us today, AJ, and end right there. Um, I think we need to hear that. And that needs to be the beginning and ending of the sentence and call it quits uh, other than learning how to do it, which is what your book helps us with. But I think that statement is so important. And I also want to add um, this, that one of the things you do, and I think really well, it is, this is not a throwaway. It is an essential part of your book. And that is at the end of each chapter, you have something called practice, where you really call us into a space where we can practice what you've just talked about in a particular chapter. And you, you outline it well, you don't leave us going, wait, I'm not sure I understand. Or, you know, I really like that part of the book as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and, and the importance of that to this book. Well, Adele, Adele Calhoun used to say about the Enneagram, like, unless you work your number, you're wasting your time. <laughs> and I, I think it's the same. It would be very hypocritical to get really excited about contemplative prayer for the content of it. <laughs> for the, like the, the understanding of it, they, like the goal of contemplative prayer is to actually do it, to actually yeah. learn the skill. And it is a skill because 
we have been so malformed mm-hmm. um, that that we've got to practice in order to gain a kind of skill in order to learn to be with God. And what's at stake is our is our character. You know, we think that patience will just happen throughout the course of life. Impatience will happen more and more. Like for me to learn to be really patient as a dad mm-hmm. um, at two thirty in the pickup line means that I start by being patient with my heavenly father first in the, in the beginning of the day where I'm not getting the results I want, the timeline I want it. And there's something that gets into our neurobiology when we learn to shift our, our neural pathways in such a ways that allow me to become more patient in the afternoon with my daughter, because I've learned to be patient in the morning um, as I sit with the Lord. Um, but, you know, practice, practice is, how, it's what changes our brain structure. And if you're not practicing that, you're going to be practicing something else. Email is a practice, right? Writing is a practice. Driving is a These are all practices in life. We're, we're constantly reinforging these, these neural pathways. So unless we try something else and forge new pathways, we're going to default to the ones that have been dug in. And that's, you know, what you do with your day is what you do with your life. So um, I think it was any, I don't remember who said that. How you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. So spend your day well. Learn how to spend your morning well, and it'll shape your life. And that's another place. I just want to hit the pause button. Let's think about that and then move on, uh, which you can do if you're listening to the podcast, you can hit the pause button and, and do that very thing. So you, you know, you talk about absurdity in the front part of the book, then you move into necessity. So take us there and give us some, some highlights, some thoughts, you know, you talked early on about the room, but I, I, there are some other things. I mean, well, it's the largest part of the book. So it says to me, that's really, that it's really important. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think laying out the idea of what is happening in our cultural moment then inevitably leads to, okay, this isn't like a practice that you should consider. This is a practice that we need to take seriously. We've gotten away from it in Western Protestantism, which, you know, there's a lot of suspicion like, Oh no, what if the devil gets involved or is this new, new age? <laughs> I get it. Like, <laughs> But, you know, Romans talks about how the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Thank you. Well, well, that means something. That's not just like God is around us. And if you, you know, just who do we think is giving us revelation about our lives while we read the Bible? Like, do we think that's just like, like we're just coming up with stuff? I hope not. I, I want to believe <laughs> that, there, that God has chosen to, to put the spirit of Christ within us so that as we are reading scripture, the spirit is illuminating like what's coming off the page for us so that we can connect that with our souls and, and learn to grow into Christ likeness throughout the course of life. Um, but I, I think that because of what's happening in culture with all the things we've previously discussed, it, it means that for Enneagram types one through nine or all Myers-Briggs or whatever personality you think you are, I think we need silent solitude and stillness. Um, Again, I'll go back to now, and he has shaped so much of how I see the world. Um, he has these categories of solitude, community, and ministry, mm-hmm. where solitude is time alone with God. Community is time with others in God, and ministry is time where God is moving through you into the world. Um, and and I think we need to figure out what equilibrium looks like in each of our lives. Like I'm more introverted than I've ever been. I need more solitude. Some people need less solitude. And some people thrive off community. I know as an introvert, I need all three solitude, community, ministry at different ratios than others in order to flourish. So I think a lot of it is people analyzing, okay, 
um, am I getting enough solitude for my personality? Am I getting enough community? And am I, am I seeing life as ministry? And inevitably there's, there's one of those three that's out of whack in my life that I'm needing to constantly like check back in with. Otherwise I'll just fill up my life with solitude or I'll just fill up my life with community or with ministry. Um, ministry and solitude are really easy for me. I have to continually say, I need community. I need the church. I need to be a part of a group that intentionally shares meals and has um, conversations that matter. Um, and I need to differentiate myself with people around the table that don't always think like me. Um, and so that's just part of our own human journey is discovering like, okay, how am I doing with each of those three based on my personality and where do I need to check in? Which is why I say read AJ Sherrill's book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation first, and then read Being with God. Uh, I mean, I think there's a um, a real vacuum of self-knowledge in the church. It was kind of swept aside for a period of time that it's just all God knowledge and all God knowledge up in the head too, not anything else. Just mm. So I, I appreciate that you say that, and that's kind of a personal hot button of mine. Um, all right. So I'm thinking um, of a, well, let, let me think where, where do I want to go now? Um, so I, I, I want you to say a little bit more about um, what, what contemplative prayer looks like the person that's listening today that we're kind of talking around it in, in very important ways, but but practically, what does it look like? There's a there's someone that's listening to this going, tell me, please tell me. Yeah. And there's more than that. I mean, you, there's got to be a deeper understanding, et cetera. And we can't begin in the deep end of the pool. How, talk to people about the how of this yeah. and maybe where to begin. Yeah, I'll just start with my own rhythm. So in the morning, um, I make the essential French press coffee, which is like part and parcel <laughs> with my own formation, like that has to happen and the equality bean. Um, there's actually a, an awesome metaphor for French press. It's supposed to steep for at least four minutes. Um, I do this thing at our church called a four minute faith press, where it's just like a four minute sort of soak encouragement before you begin your day. But the French press, like your, your, your beans, your grounds are meant to soak in the water in order to produce a sort of vivid, vibrant, impactful cup of coffee. And I, it's the same with the Lord. Like we can't expect to be deeply fruitful and to be integrated if we are just rushing from thing to thing. What does it mean to sit in the water of God's spirit and to be watered and to allow the grounds of our lives to soak and to seep um, for the sake of becoming vivid? So um, so I start with the French press coffee, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll usually um, say the creed. I'm a, I'm a good Anglican these days. Um, I love the Apostles' Creed. Mm. It's my story. And so I have to remember my story every morning. And then um, I'll read a psalm. And um, typically after that, I'll pair it with a gospel or right now I'm going through second Kings. So I'll just read a chapter of that. And, and, and then I'll just say, okay, Lord, like, like, what are you speaking? And so it's, it's all like connecting with God through words and sensory experience and, all, and that's all really good. And then at the end, I'll just sit with the Lord for 10 minutes, five minutes and just be where I have prayed. I've said the things I've needed to say to God. I've fought. Um, I've attached myself to words and information and now it's like, okay, I just want to sit in your presence before I rush into the day. And I take the Jesus prayer, a condensed form, which is just simply this. I inhale Lord Jesus Christ and I exhale, have mercy on me. And, um, and why, did, I, and, and why, why yeah. 
do you do that? What what is a a phrase like that help you do? Yeah, well, it's true. First of all, find a phrase or a word that's true for you. Connect it with your breathing. What what's happening in, in the back part of this book, being with God, kind of explores a little bit of this. Your heartbeat is connected to your breathing patterns. I don't know that we realize how integrated we are. We sit slouched over with yesterday's carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm in our lungs because we don't fully exhale. So imagine a third of your lungs with toxins in them. That's how we spend most of our days because we're not breathing properly. So it's important to start by breathing well. And people are like, oh, that's really new agey. Maybe, but it's God that breathed the word think, into existence. Think right? of, uh, yes. Well, and think of if in your younger years, if you played in the school band, if you played a wind instrument, just think back. Mm-hmm. If you were a singer, if you've ever sung in your life, think about the amount of air that it, that those practices, those things need. This is not, you know, crazy stuff that you're spewing mm-hmm. here at all. Yeah. So your, your breath is connected to your heart rate. Um, and so much is derivative of that from high blood pressure to diabetes to all sorts of things, because we're not actually breathing well and obviously diet and exercise factors into that. So that's how I start is, is just learning to like breathe properly in my day and connect it to truth. So I say that word because it gives my frontal lobe and my brain something to do. And yeah. And I, I also want to ask too, though, um, about our, our swirling minds, you know, um, things that are, we sit there in silence and our minds are, Mm -hmm going crazy. Can you use that to bring you back to that space? Yeah. I mean, St. Hesychius in the eighth century said that our minds are like this donkey going round and round in the mill. So you have these thought patterns, these loops, if you will. Um, uh, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Um, am I performing well? Uh, does she like me? Um, did I end up doing what I said? I, did I check that email? All that stuff. That's that. If you want to yeah. remember what you forgot, or where your keys are, just start praying contemplatively and it'll all click together. So you have to give your frontal lobe something to do. And what that does is it, it opens up other parts of your mind to be ministered to, because if you're not careful, your frontal lobe, which is wonderful, it's the CEO of your life. It's your analytical sort of faculty. It'll run, it'll run your life. They've actually said that about 10% of humans on a daily basis, um, access deeper parts of the brain that are responsible for functions such as compassion and empathy. Mm. Um, and so mm. you can, you can understand because we live in our frontal lobes and our amygdala, which is constantly being targeted by the news media for fear and um, all sorts of anger and rage. It bypasses deeper parts of our brain. That's responsible for compassion, empathy, um, all these centers. So like w- my friend, Tim and I will, we'll, we'll hook people up to EEGs. And we'll ask them to pray contemplatively. And it's amazing what happens in the structure of the brain when you begin to um, slow and still giving your CEO faculties of your frontal lobe something to do. Other parts of your brain begin to come online. And those are the parts of brain that I think train us for the fruit of the spirit to be um, like God in those ways. Um, So there's so, there's so much to say. Well, well, and and I just want to interject that the the last section of the book, part three is neurology. And, you know, you've already, you've um, taken a dive into talking a little bit about the brain, but why, why, and maybe you've stated it, you can say it again, because we need repetition, but why is the brain so important 
to contemplative prayer and to, um, or, and, or also, I think what, what you talk about in that section on the brain is also extremely important. Well, let's start. I mean, most people see their brains as disintegrated from their bodies, right? Your brains are sort of, you know, what sits in the three and a half pounds sitting on top of your shoulders. And it just kind of like, I mean, everything you do is really, like, you move your arm. That's your brain, by the way. Um, your vagal nerve goes all the way down into your stomach. Um, that's your brain. Um, everything you do. I mean, when you had a brain injury, you knew that like everything changes, yep. everything gets impacted here. There's nothing that remains um, unaffected when there is even a minor injury. In I smell so, weird smells now because of yeah hitting my head. <laughs> I, I, so your sight, everything, every that that is a beautiful control center. At the it's the most I it's been said and I agree it's the most um, complex and beautiful creations in all of the universe. There's there's nothing more complicated and beautiful than your brain. It's it's absolutely breathtaking mm-hmm. how God made the brain. Um, and we know so little about it, but the things we do know is that your brain isn't detached, um, sitting on top of your, your shoulders. What it is, is it's distributed throughout your entire body. So what happens in the mind, and this is why, you know, Romans 12 is so important, the transformation of the life, it happens with the transformation of the mind. So we need some sense of control over in the best ways over our thought patterns, over, um, the things that we are preoccupied with and meditating on, because those are the things that shape who we are and where we're going. So the things that you meditate on and fixate on are what you become. And so that's why it's really important that you inscript yourself with the proper story and the proper way with how God has created us to be. I'm curious, you talk about stress in the last section of the book. And and as I was reading it, it made me think about my son who's married. He's 29. Um, uh, yeah, he's tw- almost 29. So he, um, works in a museum in a S- national museum of civil war medicine. So this is his area of expertise. He loves that he comes home with no homework. No, it's no, there's no ongoing work when he enters home. And I am really wondering if some of the, our struggles with, um, quieting our mind is even generationally, um, along generational lines, maybe not, but I just, I feel like I see younger people, boomers struggle big time. I I feel like I worked 24 seven when I had a career Mm -hmm. and I feel like my son saw that and wanted no part of that. (laughs) And I I wonder how many millennial kids today, you know, they're, they're now young adults, of course, but, um, are shifting the way they have shifted the way they do things. And if there's, if it, it's easier for them to move into this realm of contemplative prayer or contemplative being, I don't know. I, I, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I think there are certainly the, uh, the absurdity of, of how we have sacrificed so much for the sake of having more things of what? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I do think emerging generations are aware of that. Um, I, I, I think it's so complicated to talk about all that stuff. I do yeah. think that we, we need to understand what has shifted from our agrarian farmer framework to the post-industrial framework that we are steeped in and really don't have um, 
any sort of history of, I mean, my great, great grandparents might've been farmers, but not since then. And what's happened with the advent of electricity, I don't think we understand. So it used to be that when the sun sets, like you're, right. the day's done and you, you can't, you couldn't go outside and make that crop grow any faster anyway. So the day's done. And so you're connected already with transcendence. You're connected with needing God to provide rain and sunshine and all of the conditions to make things grow. You're in a partner with the creator of the universe. I think where we are now with like, I mean, lights just, I mean, it gets back to the Times Square illustration. We last night, um, by the time you're listening to this, I'm not sure if the World Series will still be going on, but the Atlanta Braves were trying to clinch uh, game five. And it was 1030 and um, my, my wife was sitting next to me. She was scrolling. So she's a researcher, total Enneagram five. And I'm sitting there sort of watching the game. And I said to her at 1030, I was like, I'm really tired. And this game has two hours left. I'm, I need to go to bed because like that has everything to do with my day tomorrow and how often I won't make that decision. And I'll make bad choices because I have access to staying up and fighting sleep and looking at screens that are bearing light and blue waves that are telling my, you know, all of my cortisol to spike and all of my melatonin to go away, which has everything to do with whether I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. So there's just a lot of things that we, I don't think we realize how embedded we are culturally to our technocratic universe, uh, our meta verse, if you yeah. will. Um, and how, how distance we've, we've made ourselves from things like sunlight and evening um, we're so detached from that world. And I think that has a lot to do with the stress that we're carrying right now. I, I did not see you bringing in all of the things that you brought in, all of the subjects that you brought into this book. I did not see this book going the direction that it went when I saw the title. I think it is fascinating. I mean, the last three chapters, you know, breaths, uh, breath, stress, and sleep. I mean, talk about relevance to where we live, not to mention everything else before that in the book. I, I just didn't, I didn't put that all together with contemplative prayer. I just feel like you have woven together something really kind of extraordinary. Um, what do you hope people t walk away from, um, this book with? I think the biggest thing for me is that God is hiding in the depths of the human Christ follower and is longing to be found. And um, I, I mean, I cry thinking about it. I, I want a deeper life with, um, I want more intimacy with Christ and I'm often too busy for it. I want, I want people to discover who they are in Christ at the depths of who they are. Well, I think between the two books that you have out in the world, that's really evident. And I, I commend both of them to people. Um, Being with God is what we've been talking about today. And I think it's a fantastic book. Um, always a, a great conversation. AJ Cheryl, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Oh, what a privilege. Grace and peace to you. And to everyone else, as always, I say, keep the conversation going. Thank you.